All right, well, today, my privilege to introduce our speaker, and uh, it is a joy for me to watch this young woman, and I can say that because me, everyone's young, develop and grow into into the call and the gifting of God on her life. And I am always, honestly, I'm always impressed by what she brings. And so I don't believe today will be any less. So, So without further ado, welcome Melissa Montgomery. Oh, thank you. All right. All right, well, it's great to be... I sound really, really loud. It's great to be here with you guys. I missed you guys the last couple of weeks. We were traveling for New Year's and business trips and all of those things. Um, I'm kind of glad we all stopped when we did because my sermon title, Refining Focus, has been, you know, being preached since we kicked off this morning with the devotional and, and then Jen's experience and word. But it's actually a lesson I've been teaching in art, too. So this past week, yeah, sometimes sermons come like that and they're so easy and they practically write themselves. And it's like you get a word, you get a scripture, and it's like, bang, there it is. But guys, I had to really fight for this one. (laughs) I was texting friends last night, and I'm like, I have nothing. And I think it was like 8 o'clock at night. I was like, I have nothing. I'm like, I don't even have a word, like a word to build off of. So I decided to test the Lord and see if his voice really hovered upon the water and take a shower and see what happened. So thankfully, Revelation came, and he goes, you know, I gave you a month's worth of art lessons. Use your outlines. And I was like, okay, let's do that. Let's repurpose it. And actually it was perfect. And I didn't, and, and as I sat down with my art lines and my lessons that I already had developed in my, uh, and, uh, and I go, okay, so how do these definitions, which bo- apply both to art, like focus, refinement, perspective, what we're going to look at, how do they also apply to our lives in scripture? And how do they show up in scripture? And I, the first, obviously, is refining focus. So first we have to determine what our focus is. Okay? It's basically just asking ourselves some questions. The who, what, when, where, why, and how. Who are we looking at? What are we looking at? Are we so bogged down by the circumstances? Are we so... Are we getting tired of tra- trudging through the the busyness, the day-to-day, the gunk of life that we're forgetting that we actually need to look up? Because that's where I was. When are we looking at these things? Which seems like an unusual question, but when is actually a really important question. Because if we don't take into account the time, and you could say time of day or our emotional state or our physical state of being awake or tired, being tired wreaks havoc on your perspective. Being in a crappy emotional state, just being down, and and for no other reason than sometimes you just feel a little blue, it wreaks havoc on your perspective. 
So you have to take all of those things into consideration. Where, where am I looking? Am I looking to God to fill the needs and desires that I need? Am I looking to Facebook? Am I looking to, or any social media for that matter? Am I looking to my finances? Am I looking to food? Am I looking to any other word or thing that can take a place or be an idol in my life? Why is a big question too. It's it's usually not the best question. You can get tripped up in all of the whys, but you also have to consider that too. Did something happen? Is this is this being stemmed from me and my personal decisions that might not actually line up with what I need to be doing? Is it just circumstances of life because things happen that are completely out of your control at times? So so what's the why? Is it God's present leading? And I'm just having a hard time. Is it, where is my focus? And then it's how. How am I looking at things? My perspective, my lens. All right? And when we look at things, and you, uh, you're, uh, when you greeted this morning from Benny's uh, devotional, and you said, living under yesterday's condemnation never makes us more humble. It cloaks us in shame. <laughs> And it makes everything about me, right? Yeah. How amazing to see that. That if I'm living under yesterday's condemnation, how my entire perspective becomes veiled, it becomes cloaked, it becomes all about me, all about this hard thing. I wrap myself in it like a garment And that's not where we're supposed to stay. That's not where we're supposed to live. So I asked God, what about the refining? So we're going to talk about focus, but why refining focus? Not Why not resetting focus, repurposing focus, new focus? And he goes, just like Jen said, he goes, because you know I'm ever present. And it's the little things that you're going to tweak that make the big changes. And I believe it's for today. I believe it's for all year. And it's great. So we're going to first start talking about perspective. All right? So we're going to go with the broad definition. And perspective is kind of like monitoring our mind. So the art definition of perspective is the representation of a three-dimensional object in a two-dimensional space to create realism or to intentionally distort or disorient images. So if we look at it again and we say perspective is the representation of a three-dimensional, a heavenly being, us, because we are seated with God in Christ, or we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, we are of heaven, and we live in a two-dimensional space, we live on earth. And we can either live in the reality of heaven, the reality of what's around us, or we can intentionally distort or disorient the image. So we constantly have to go through our mind and see if we're distorting, if we're disoriented, if we're actually grabbing hold of the truth of God, the reality of what is our facts, what's around us, our circumstances. We don't deny those. We don't stick our head in our sand and we say, that's not happening. God is good. No, no, just don't. That will set you up for a ton of hurt later. You recognize the facts, you recognize the circumstances, and then you take it to God. We don't ignore it. 
because God's view is the ultimate truth. It's our heavenly reality. So how do we as one seated in heavenly places, how do we as one found righteous in Christ Jesus, how do we as one with access to all wisdom and knowledge act regarding factual information, circumstances, and earthly matters? How do we act knowing who we are and where we're seated? Do we embrace the kingdom truth? Or do we intentionally allow our mind to disorient ourselves or to distort the images that are coming in? We're going to look at David real quick. Okay, it's just going to be like a brief thing. We know David was anointed at a very young age. And at his initial party, where the prophet Samuel came to anoint the next king, Jesse's child, one of Jesse's children, he wasn't even invited to it. So where did David set his mind? Did he set his mind on the anointing, the purpose, the promise, his destiny? Or did he set his mind on the fact that even his own father didn't invite him to the party to promote him? Where did David set his mind? And David acted like a king long before he had a throne. He served with honor and dignity, and he was faithful in everyday actions. He cared for the sheep. He worshipped God while he was caring for the sheep. He had the small victories, the lion and the bear. He had the bigger victories, Goliath. Saul sent him out many times to kill enemies. He learned to be a warrior, and he kept the heart of worshipper. And there was a king, Saul, who was seated and anointed. But Saul was on his way out. And Saul hated David. Because the hand of God was on David. Saul knew, I believe Saul knew he was on his way out. And he knew change was coming. But he couldn't embrace the change that was coming. And he fought it. How did he handle it? Where did he set his mind? Because Saul could have changed his mind. Saul could have followed God. There could have been a peaceful transition of power. But where did Saul set his mind? And then he moves into the area of manipulation. And Saul says, sorry, i got to slow down. And Saul tells David, do this great exploit for me and I will give you this. Not intending to bless David, but intending for David to die in the battle so that his problem was gone. But with each battle and with each faithful action that David completed, his favor grew with the armies of Israel. And then, as David continued to serve, and he had all of the army's favor, where did David set his mind? He could have staged a coup with the favor of the military, or he could continue to serve in the house of Saul. And we know that he continued to serve as his favor grew, because he wasn't a treacherous man. We know that David was a man after God's own heart. And then we kind of see, and these are all heart decisions being made. David's doing this in the secret and the quiet. They are all kind of internal decisions that as he walks out, proves his character and proves who he is. But then we see in 1 Samuel 19.9 that a spirit of distress comes upon Saul as he sits on his throne holding his spear. You know, as you do, you just lounge around your house holding your spear, brooding over... His hatred, brooding over his jealousy, brooding over where his mind should be set. Distorted and disoriented images. So as Saul's sitting there with his spear, 
David, we'll say he's Elena, is playing his harp. David is worshiping, and the worship actually soothes Saul, but not to the point where the distortion and the disorientation in Saul's mind is completely gone, because all of a sudden, he throws his spear at David, but we know he misses. So all of these decisions that David's made internally, he now has an external decision. He's sitting with his harp and with the spear that just missed him. And David is a warrior. And David doesn't miss. But David's also a worshiper. So now he has, I don't know, I would call it a momentary crisis. He has somebody who actively was trying to kill him. Does he defend himself? Does he take over? Does he pick up the spear? He could. He's actually anointed as king. Or does he worship? Well, he chose to leave. He chose to obey God because there was a time, there was a time, there was a promise. And David, a man after God's own heart, knew that there was a time, knew that there was a waiting upon the Lord. And between the promise, when no one wanted him, and his destiny, when he is a set in as king of all of Israel, united under him, where he was wanted, and they embraced him, there was this long process And he had to live in the tension of the promise and the destiny, the fulfillment of that promise. And in that time, because he acted like a king, because because he was a man after God's own heart, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor. Doesn't that sound familiar? Who else grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man? Jesus. There were many times Saul was handed, was delivered into the hands of David, and David chose to honor. He chose to serve, and he knew that in the fullness of time, his promise would be made complete. So that's kind of the big perspective, right? From promise to fulfillment of promise, that huge thing in between. If we narrow down our perspective, and we look at in art what's called realism, and I'm going to call this section the practical ones. Realism what's, is what is in our field of view. So if I were a camera and I took a picture, everything I see in front of me is what is in my field of view. Okay, just as it is right now how I'm seeing it. The subjects appear natural to the observer. So Fred's not like 20 foot tall and Jeff isn't like two inches back there. <laughs> You appear natural to me. Nothing is distorted. It's an accurate impression which gives height, depth, width, and a position from a particular point. I love that. It's how we see things from a particular point. In art and in real life. So for life application, I would have to ask myself, okay, what's the particular point? What's my starting point? to keep everything in an accurate impression of what is given as height, depth, width, and position. And I could not help but go right to Romans and Ephesians. So we need to determine what's natural, and it starts with living daily, purposefully, practically, and always in the love of God. We're going to go to Romans 8, and we're going to read 35 to 39. 
Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day and we are being slaughtered like sheep. But no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither fears for today nor worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ our Lord. I think that's a pretty amazing starting point, right? The love of God, no matter the hardship. And then Ephesians 3, uh, 16 to 21. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. And Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will go down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. That was like the accurate impression, almost word for word, the definition of perspective realism right here. The particular point, how high, how deep, how wide, how long his love is for you. And if that's where we start, is in his love, the initial yes to Christ, being called and loved by him, well, then the next step is identity, right? And I believe Pastor Fred's been preaching about this the last couple of weeks, at least. And I know it's been preached many times before, and I know I've preached on it, because it's the truest thing in all the universe, is what God says about you. That's right. The truest thing. So, Jerry, like prophesying over yourself, it's literally speaking out loud what God is saying about you. And it's so powerful. Because the two most important questions is, or are, who do you say Christ is? Because that gets you into the kingdom. And who Christ says you are, because that puts the kingdom in you. And what you believe about your identity will either promote you into your destiny or it will cause you to forfeit your destiny. Because our identity is linked to our heavenly authority, favor, and influence. All of those things are attached to who we are in Christ. Do we believe it? Do we embrace it? Is this the point where we start the foundation of the love of God standing in his presence as who he says we are, no matter what comes at after us, all of the hardships. And it starts with living daily. And it has to be a purposeful, practical decision. So it's a way we monitor our mind. It's a way we bring our perspective back into focus. So if we're talking about perspective, the broad definition, and we're narrowing it down, and we just narrowed it down to our field of view and what's in front of us, 
which some people are really good at seeing what's right in front of them, right? They're practical. I can be practical sometimes, but not all the time. So we have the practical, and then we bring it in, or we can bring it out. We can zoom in, or we can zoom out. I'm going to zoom in first, because this is where I tend to be. And when we zoom in, I call this one the unusual ones, because everything is important. Everything is noticed Everything is detail-oriented. Everything in us move towards the subject matter. So if I'm going to zoom in, just like I do on a camera, I zoom in and I move toward the subject that I'm zooming toward. It shows all of the details. It's the most intimate view, and it can be ongoing even into a molecular level. Now, I'm not that detail-oriented, but there are scientists, thank God, that are and study those things. Because God cares about the details. God cares about the details. God works within a plan. God works within a blueprint. God can be structured and organized. And he provides for the smallest of things. Read Exodus 25 to 31 if you want. I usually skip that part. I'm going to be honest. Because it's the plans for the tabernacle. And when God planned for the tabernacle, he planned out the kinds of woods, the kinds of metals, the engravings, the gemstones, the settings of the gemstones, the designs, the colors. Every detail was taken note of. And that is the house, was the house. That was the house of God. He cared about it all. Even the furniture, all of it. And what I find amazing is in the Old Testament. Yeah, it's right there. In the Old Testament, Exodus 31, 1 to 5, he even set aside a man to fill with the Holy Spirit, to fill with the Holy Spirit. We're talking Old Testament, Old Covenant. And this craftsman, this artisan, he was specifically filled to complete the metalwork, the engravings, the settings. So he didn't just give these plans and say, go do it. He gave the plans and he filled a craftsman, an artisan, with the Holy Spirit so that they could accomplish it. The Lord, the ultimate what? Yeah. The Lord said to Moses, look, I have specifically chosen Bezalel, I'm not sure how you say his name, son of Uri, grandson of her of the tribe of Judah. He was a worshiper too. I have filled him with the spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. Crafts. He is a master craftsman, expert in working in gold and silver and bronze. He is skilled in engraving, mounting gemstones, and carving wood. He is a master at every craft. So one of the first people ever filled with the Holy Spirit is an artist. I think that's awesome. Because God cared about the details. Okay, this next one I think is kind of fun. We're going to look at a detail in nature. And where's Lucy? I have to give her credit. I don't think she's in the room, though. 
So Lucy actually came up with this. Guys, I was so stuck. I was asking my kids, and they came up with all of these themes and all of these ideas, and and this was one of Lucy's ideas. She goes, you got to talk about the Jesus lizard. And I'm like, all right, before I go into it, does anybody know what the Jesus lizard is? Okay, so the Jesus lizard is actually called the common basilisk. And it's this little lizard, no more than a foot to two foot long, that lives in the tropical rainforest around streams and rivers in Central and South America. Little lizard. Not a big deal. Very located in a very central area. But guys, this lizard walks on the water. How awesome is that? Now, you could think, oh, creation's great. But if we actually stop and think about it for a minute... And if everything in Genesis was created in fullness, this little guy has been walking on the water since creation. Before Jesus. Right? Yet we're surprised when Peter tries to, and we say Jesus, he's, you know, the son of God, okay? So we make an exception for him. But we're surprised when Peter actually tries to get out on the water and walk. But we have a lizard who does it daily. It's common. They're the common basilisk. They probably have little buddies laughing at them if they can't walk on water. Like, that's so basic. Like this little guy. Okay? But we know in Romans, we know in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, have been made clearly seen, being understood from what was made, and people are without excuse. People are without excuse. It leaves us without excuse. It's a demonstration of God's power. It's a demonstration of his attributes and qualities that this little critter can run on the water. So we being in Christ, this is just me thinking because it's not like I'm going to go try to walk on water tomorrow. But we being in Christ, how much should we be grabbing a hold of that? What else is there? What else is hidden? What else is a mystery that we get to go after? Those little details. Now you gotta give Peter credit. I mean, they lived in, they lived in, where do they live? South America. So completely different continent, you know, far away. They didn't have National Geographic. They didn't have wild crats. So Peter had no idea. But guys, we know. We've seen. We've heard. So what's our excuse? I love that. It was really funny when she said, do a Jesus lizard. It really fit, too. And then we have a man. We're going to talk about a historical figure, too. George Washington Carver. This man loved God, and this man loved nature. And his story is amazing, and he's worth studying. Totally worth studying. And George Washington Carver, he was born at the end of the Civil War. He was raised... As a slave, but then as a free man, his childhood even, his whole family was kidnapped. The owner of the plantation was only able to save him. His last name's Carver because his owner's last name was Carver. Um, His mom named him George, but the owner loved him and raised him as a son until he was 10 years old. And then when George was 10 years old, he wanted to go to school, but there were no schools that allowed African-American children. So he walked... 
like a ridiculous amount of miles to rent a room by this school. And he was, I'm going to say discipled because this woman had to know Christ. He was discipled by this woman and she goes, you need to learn everything you can and then give it back to the people. And he did and he excelled. And he was one of the first black men um, in Iowa State University and he studied art. That was what he studied. And his art teacher goes, look, you're amazing at this, but your love of plants, you need to be a botanist or an agriculturalist. And that's what he did. So then he became, he became, he was a lot of things. He became an agricultural inventor and scientist, and he worked as a farmer to pay his way through school in the broken rural South after the Civil War. And he would meet with God, and he would go, this is a quote, All my life I have risen early at four in the morning to go into the woods and talk with God. That's where he reveals his secrets to me. When everybody else is asleep, I hear God best, and I learn my plan. He would go, and he would pursue, and he would spend time with God, and he loved God, and he loved nature. And he knew that if he loved something good enough, it was going to share its secrets with you. And one day he was asking God, show me the secrets of the universe. And he said, God laughed at him. He said, that's too big for you. And he goes, okay, fine. Then show me the secrets of humanity. And he goes, no, that's still too much. And he goes, fine. If you won't show me that, show me the secrets of the peanut. Would you unlock the secrets of the peanut for me? And then he said he heard God, and God said, separate the peanut into water, fats, oils, gums, resins, sugars, starches, and amino acids. Then recombine these under my law. It's God talking, so whose law? God's law. Combine them under my three laws of compatibility, temperature, and pressure. Then the Lord said, you will know why I made the peanut. Here's the amazing thing about the peanut. It seems like a random request, but he was a southern farmer. And the soil was dying. It was depleted of all nutrients. Cotton, I guess, pulls it out, and there's nothing to replace it. So these these farmers are in financial ruin. Their fields are dying. And there's also, at the time, a huge infestation of bull bull weevils, which is a bug that likes to eat cotton. So they have nothing. They have nothing. They're losing everything. And Carver already had the idea to rotate crops. He goes, plant the peanuts, plant the sweet yams or sweet potatoes, rotate them yearly. But the farmers were so afraid of financially falling into shambles that they didn't have their cotton because nobody wanted to buy the peanuts. They were a useless crop. Yeah, you can eat them, but nobody wants to buy them. And the sweet potatoes as well. So they didn't want to listen until Carver unlocked the secret of the peanut. He ended up, well, first he was credited with crop rotation and that kind of theory, but he ended up praying and asking about the peanuts and because where he was placed in time, in history, in the physical location he was, things fell into place and God gave him information to save a region Once he heard God say, go back, separate it, apply my laws to these things, he was able to come up with 300 different uses for the peanut. And people started to listen. And people started to use the peanut. So much so that the state he lived in sent him to Congress 
to advocate for laws for peanut growers so that they could plant and sell their crops. And because it was so busy at the time, everybody got 10 minutes. Carver didn't know what to do. He's like, 10 minutes, I'm not sure what to do. So he just demonstrated what he could demonstrate. And they were so impressed by his demonstration that they ended up giving him two or three hours on the floor to present all of his findings. And later he said to say, the Lord always provides me with life-changing ideas. Not that I'm special. The Lord provides everyone with life-changing ideas. These ideas are quite literally a treasure from the Almighty. It is up to each of us, however, to choose and dig for the treasure. What a beautiful story of redemption and restoration and healing. So because he was in the right time, the right place, and he could find the detail to unlock the saving measures, he saved the region. So if we zoom in, now we zoom out. I call these the pioneers. They're the big picture people. They move away from the subject matter. So you zoom out, you move away. This actually provides context clues, basically to infinity and beyond. There is no limit. And here we have Abraham that we're going to look at. So Abraham had no idea where God was sending him. He just knew where he couldn't stay. But he had a promise. So in Genesis 12, the Lord says to Abraham, Leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know how God was going to make him a great nation. He didn't know how he was going to bless those who bless him. He just knew he had to move. He just knew he had to be obedient. He saw the very beginning and he saw the end. But it was the in-between that he just had to trust. And I find that when you're pioneering things, Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 is like the key for a pioneer. And that says, trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make straight your path. And in this verse, it breaks it down so neatly. First, you trust, because trust removes the fear. And what do you trust? Well, you don't trust your own understanding, because what you're doing is bigger than you right now. Then you acknowledge, you verbally acknowledge the presence of God in the situation. Verbally acknowledge. Sometimes you have to say it out loud. God, I don't know where I am and I don't know where I'm going, but I see you. God, I don't know where I am and I don't know where I'm going. Refine my focus. Where do I look? And then it says, he will make straight your path. It's just following the steps he lays in front of you. Because you don't know where you're going. But the following requires constant obedience. And obedience is an action word. You have to actually do it. But see, because there was a purpose and a promise stated at the beginning, there was no way Abraham could fail. As long as he obediently followed the path in front of him. 
I'll tell you a funny story real quick. Oh, I don't even know. A couple, like not even two weeks ago, it was a Wednesday. Becca's running around getting ready for ballet. She comes home from school and we have to leave immediately. So she grabs a snack, changes her clothes, and I'm kind of following her around, helping her. Like, you need to find this. You need to find that. Where is everything? And she's trying to eat a muffin, and I'm like, give me the muffin. What are you doing? You're making a mess. So she's like, fine, hold my muffin. And I bend over and I drop the muffin trying to pick up something else. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm a bad muffin holder. And then I go over here and, and I was doing something else really fast and I dropped the muffin again and she's like, Mom, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm a bad muffin holder. I don't know. You shouldn't trust me with the muffin. And then she's running through the kitchen and I'm following her still. And in the hallway is one of Nathan's toy wooden and metal Civil War rifles. And here's the wall and half of the gun. And here's the other half of the gun in the walkway. And I've told him to pick it up about three or four times. I know it's there. Okay? He knows it's there. The whole house knows it's there. But nobody's moved it. So I dropped the muffin twice. I'm running after her. I hit the gun with my foot. And oh my God, if I didn't have shoes on, I think I would have broke my toe. It made like a lever between the table and the gun and the wall. And then me hitting it, it bent the gun. And it's wood and metal. And I felt it in the whole left side of my body. My toes, my ankle, my knee, my hip, and then my shoulder the next day. And I, was, I start crying because it hurt. But it's been a few weeks, guys, and it's been a hard few weeks. So once I started crying, I couldn't stop crying. But as I hit this gun and I'm tripping, and you know, you do the graceful catch yourself, the muffin flies straight in the air. It hits me in the head. And I had a hoodie on. It maintained contact, rolled down my head, and fell in my hood. And God goes, I trust you with all the muffins. And I'm like, start crying, and I'm laughing. And I'm like, that's not even funny, and it hurts. And I couldn't stop laughing, and I laughed for a really long time, probably all the way to ballet. And, and I stopped to think about it later, and he's like, there's no way you can fail. I trust you with all the muffins. <laughs> it was funny. It really did hurt them, like, really bad. But, yes, <laughs> when there's a purpose, when you set sail in obedience to God and there's a purpose, he will make straight your path. Even study the story of Abraham. Abraham screwed up a couple of times, but you know what? He couldn't fail. He was a pioneer. Pioneers create pathways for generations to follow. They break away from what is and move into what could be. And I say could be because it requires a future vision. And future vision usually always needs some form of refinement. So they move away not knowing to what could be. And it usually requires delusional levels of faith. <laughs> I know that sounds horrible, but like faith full to overflowing. And you have to remember it because you're going to need to, as you spend the faith, you got to fill it back up. Otherwise, you end up crying about a muffin. You have to fill it back up. So they're openers of doors. 
You could say any of the founding fathers had a zoomed out view. They knew where they started. They had no idea how it was going to end. And in the middle, they had to trust, get rid of the fear. They had to know it was bigger than them. And they had to acknowledge that God was in the midst of it and that he was going to make those paths. And what's, it seems unfair, but it's really not. Pioneers usually bear the brunt of the burden, the cost of the breakthrough. And sometimes they never fully get to live in the vision, but the vision is their legacy. The vision is their legacy. And they influence cultures of generations to come because it is so much bigger than you. So much bigger. So let's wrap it up. So this is the definition I created for refining focus and bringing this all together. It's producing a clear visual replication by making incremental changes to improve the accuracy and quality of a work by accentuating the subtle. Let's break it down. Because this is the point of perspective. This is our quick checkup at the end. What do I need to change? Just the little things. What do I need to change to make a big difference? What am I thinking about? Where's my focus? It's not that my focus is excluding God. It's that my focus just needs to be turned a little bit to face him. All right? So a clear visual replication. That's operating from our heavenly identity. We should be a clear visual representation. A Christian. A little Christ. Doing what our Heavenly Father is doing and saying what our Heavenly Father is saying. We make those incremental changes, those small changes, by monitoring our mind. What's coming in? What's going out? What are we constantly thinking about? Where have we set our mind? Are we aware of our attitudes and our perceptions of what's going on around us? And we do this to improve the accuracy and the quality of the work. So just like Carver, he sought out the treasure, he sought out the plans, he sought out the strategy, he sought out the information. But once he had the information, he was obedient and he acted on it. Are we willing to be pioneers? Are we willing to lay ourselves aside knowing that the calling is bigger than us. And yeah, we might see the initial cost, but it's covered because it's in Christ. And he does not prepare you, and he does not send you out, or he does not, yes, I don't know if that's right. He does not prepare you for any reason. He prepares you for a specific call, and he doesn't just send you out without the provisions you need. This is a cool one. By accentuating the subtle. Because we all have a preference. We all are the zoomed out big picture idea. Or we're the zoomed in to every little detail. Or we're the normal field of vision, right? We're the realist. We see what's directly in front of us. We're the right now. But all of those things need to make prominent the little things to a certain degree. Because God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. 
And those little boring everyday details, getting up, going to work, doing the laundry, getting your dog's haircut, getting your children's haircut, they add up. And it's actually a lifestyle of worship. That's what made David a worshiper. He did it all onto the Lord. He watched the sheep as onto the Lord. He did everything as onto the Lord. Because there's no divide between the secular and the sacred in our lives as Christians. It's all worship to Christ. Whatever you're doing, whenever you're doing it, wherever you're doing it. It's an act of worship. And it should be done purposefully. And all of those little hidden things is what removes the veil. And it, it, let's read, let's read 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 3. It's what removes the veil. It's what makes us more like Christ. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So whatever we do, if we're doing it as unto the Lord, the veil is removed. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Or, this is a different version, but I love the imagery. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. When everything comes together and our focus is brought back to where it needs to be, to see and behold, to know, to trust, and we live our lives as an act of worship, the big things and the little things, the veil is continuously removed and we continuously look more like Christ day to day to day. And as we worship and as we walk, we got to do both. You got to do both. My motto lately has been cry and walk. Don't stop. Cry and walk. But you got to walk. As we do those things, we grow like Christ grew. So if Christ needed it, we need it. We grow in wisdom and stature and favor with both God and I'm going to pray for you all. And it's almost noon, so I feel like that was really long. I'm sorry. Jesus, we refine our focus. We sit and we ask ourselves the hard questions, and we make the subtle incremental changes to reposition us toward you. We live our lives in a way that reflects who we are seated in heavenly places with all wisdom and knowledge provided us provided to us by you. Lord, I pray that, I just pray an extra portion, a double portion of wisdom and knowledge and discernment for every single person in this building and listening online, that it would cover them like a cloak, that they would walk out of this place And walk in such a supernatural way that they would have the answers to change families and regions and lives. Because they're willing to look at the little things. 
They're willing to look at what's directly before them, and they're willing to allow you to zoom out the picture, to see the bigger context, to see the impact that their lives are going to make on regions and generations. Thank you that we get to be a part of it. Thank you that I get to be a part of it. I praise you, and you're just so good. Like, like the song said earlier, we are ruined for nothing less than to worship at your feet, than to be with you constantly, and let our lives reflect that act of worship as we go out today. In Jesus' name.